Welcome to the Future Fix. In this series, we've heard a lot about the benefit of data and its application. We use it to eliminate food waste or determine where to install a bike lane. And it's essential during a crisis. The more knowledge we have about an emergency, the better we're prepared to deal. But open data also means many things, depending on who you ask. Some see it as an ethos, a kind of best practice to strive for. Others see it as a literal tool for specific situations. Still others see it as a kind of magic phrase, a panacea for all our problems wherever we live. But can we use open data quickly and effectively to address urgent community needs? You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is Season 2 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you from places large and small, from coast to coast to coast. To get us started, and really dig into why open data is important, I spoke with Tracy Lorio, an assistant professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, who specializes in critical media and big data. So for me... Open data is a means to an end. It's not the thing in and of itself. In other words, one of the reasons that I came to open data and worked with the people that I did 20-some years ago here in, in Canada and in other places in a way was, was about how can we participate in any kind of deliberative democracy if we can't deliberate with the same information that an administration, a government, or a politician has. So it means that we're already, as as citizens and residents of a city, a province, or a country, you can't participate equally in a conversation about uh, a large dam project or the modification of, of the river that may result in the ecosystem that may be affected, or you can't talk about issues related to poverty and social inequality unless you've got some of the base information that you need to be able to make uh, an informed type of opinion that will allow you to see some patterns so that you can try with others to come to some kind of resolution. When it comes to addressing urgent needs, as Tracy has been busy with during the COVID-19 pandemic, Having access to the necessary data is essential, but you have to approach it with a critical and equitable lens or you won't get far. So one of the things that that I've been doing is is I've gone to all the federal, provincial and territorial official public health sites and I started looking at them in March. What categories are they capturing and what are they not capturing? 
in terms of data. And what I quickly found was there was no standardization between and among, even the age categories, zero to five or zero to nine. So how am I supposed to compare Montreal and Quebec in age groups? You can't. None of the sites were capturing any information about the kinds of workers who were on the front lines beyond the obvious healthcare workers. The other thing uh, is we did not see deaths reported in an even way. So we saw age, but we didn't always see gender. And of course, we saw no classification systems related to uh, Indigenous, First Nations, such as First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and or any ethnocultural visible minority, linguistic, etc. types of characteristics. That was clear. So all of those classifications were absent. And what was there was not done in any kind of standardized way, nor with good metadata to explain what was going on, nor definitions of what was being reported, nor any kind of methodological guide or data dictionary to explain how numbers are reported. Tracy found early on in the pandemic, government's daily COVID updates didn't allow for long-term study. Tracy and her colleagues called on officials to adopt some open data best practices. And then here we have all these principles of open data. Report your data in an open format, a CSV file, let's say. Have longitudinal data so that you can do some trend analysis across time. Have the data be timely and up to date, which is part of longitudinal and having like a new spreadsheet every day. Ensure that you describe your data properly so that the data are understood by everyone and no mistakes are made. So that if I'm reporting a case in Ontario, that the case that's being reported in BC is the same kind of case. And if they differ in how they report a case, then we need to know that. And then uh, sharing that under an open license. You know, our, our question to ourselves in this research project is, what would it look like had open science, open data, open government, open by default principles been followed in public reporting of COVID. But in terms of public reporting, it's almost as if open data didn't exist as a concept. Yes, you would think epidemiologists and the medical profession would understand this more because they're scientists. Well, no, because they're tempered with population health and social determinants of health. And their work is primarily on the social side of the equation, the population side of the equation. And they never were really, for lack of a better term, the knowledge that we had about open data didn't transfer to that community. Quite frankly, we failed to communicate the basics of open science, open data, open by default, and so on across government. And we failed to build in that thinking and that infrastructure early on to ensure that it's normalized. Because it is not normalized across government, not in any which way or form. There are small pockets here and there, but the conversation never transferred or never got mobilized into other sectors. If we wanna do any kind of equalizing, it's not just the question of open data. And that's why I, I think if we stay only in the topic of open data and we don't do what I call critical data thinking, we will always stay in the very narrow uh, parameters of the definition of open data or open by default or what the charter says and which data sets are considered high value, as opposed to actually looking at the context that we're in and taking a more nuanced analysis of, okay, well, in this case here, who's been left out of the COVID equation, if you will, in terms of data? 
How have the, the public health, official public health reporting failed in open science, open data, open specifications, and so on? But also from a social justice perspective and a political economy perspective, which classifications are not there? How are they not counting? Who's not being accounted for? Who's invisible in the conversation and who's overly visible in the conversation? And then how do we start bridging that gap and being more equitable when it comes to data? In other words, how do we bring people of lived experience into our data-based, if you will, or open data-based, we hope, deliberations? And so for me, that's what open data can do for us if we're willing to get in to a really complicated conversation about how we approach it, how we think about it, and then what it is that we need to do. And this means really deep social justice work and a lot of reflection on each of our parts to actually help other communities who are experiencing inequality issues with regards to COVID. And how do we do that with data? And how can we put our minds to listening? How can we listen to communities to know what they want and how they want it? And the reasons that they want it in that way and not impose what we think they should want, because that's been primarily the norm. So we actually need to change the rules of the game if we're actually going to take this to, I think, a really much more nuanced and useful level where we can actually help people with open data as opposed to just entertaining ourselves. The pandemic is a rare and extreme example of communities being put under extreme pressure and looking for answers. But many communities are currently navigating multiple social and public health disasters at any given moment. The housing crisis, the tragic rise in opioid-related deaths, social inequality, and the threat to our natural environment, just to name a few. And while most people agree these issues are interconnected, a lot of the information about them is siloed. The data sets are closed off from one another, and they're not always studied holistically as a system. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, an interactive database called PEG was developed to make this holistic approach to community health open and easy to use. Jodine Baker is the Director of Impact Innovation and Evaluation at the United Way in Winnipeg, and she takes us through how PEG is helping researchers, activists, and local government identify the way vital community health indicators influence each other. PEG is an initiative that's run in collaboration between United Way Winnipeg and the International Institute of Sustainable Development. And what PEG is, is the Community Indicator System for the City of Winnipeg. It's a web-based resource that tracks measures that we call indicators that reflect and measure our city's well-being. It reports on everything from life expectancy to water use, things like personal safety and median household income. And it really came about by this knowledge and this, you know, we've had lots of conversations with people and saying, you know, everyone cares about the place that they live in. You you find lots of people who are advocates for their city and they say, you know, I really care about, I want to make sure that my community is the best place it can be. And we realize, you know, it's great to care, but you need to do more than that. You know, caring isn't enough. You really need to have goals for yourself. You need to understand the well-being and that health of the community. So that's where what PEG uh, was born out of, was this idea that caring is great, but you need to also have some action and be able to track progress towards your goals. Right. I want to dig into that concept of indicators, because uh, as you mentioned, from all segments of society, it could be education or you know, infant health or uh, mm-hmm. employment, all, all kinds of things. So 
to identify what these indicators were that, uh, you know, indicators of uh, a community's health, I see that you, you had sort of a large consultation process. We did. So PANC does not collect data, but rather we communicate data that has been collected externally. So, you know, examples would be Statistics Canada, the province of Manitoba, the city of Winnipeg, for example. So how we landed on which pieces of data to use uh, was this extensive community consultation process with over 800 people from a variety of sectors, which started with really uh, at the highest level of brainstorming and then going down to shortlisting and then finally determining those theme areas and indicators. And the indicators are monitored and evaluated on an ongoing basis by our cross-sectoral advisory group, as well as project team members from both IASD and United Way Winnipeg. And I guess uh, arriving at these indicators uh, via consultation, that also allows you to bake in concerns about data sovereignty and how certain groups might be portrayed if data is used irresponsibly. Yeah, exactly. So on our on our website, if you go look at PEG, with every indicator, we not only provide you information on the source of the data, but we also talk about, you know, the measurement and the limitations, how it's used. So making sure to be clear about what that metric is. So at the heart of PEG is good data. That's why that consultation process was so key. This wasn't just about us, you know, doing a Google search to say, well, you know, what data can we find that's out there? But rather looking to find the the best data that we could to represent each of those indicators. So when did PEG really get up and running? PEG has been up and running for almost, well, not quite 10 years, but I think about seven years now since we've gone live. We're already into our second iteration of our website. Uh, What that means is for a lot of the data on our site, when we can get older data, we'll put it on there as well. So for some data, you can go back to, for example, you know, 10 years worth of data on the website. So you're able to yourself look back at different time periods to see how the data has changed. And it seems like you have at least the backing of the local government, uh, the, the city of Winnipeg, but uh, are, are you finding buy-in from other levels of government as well? We absolutely are. So this year we were really excited. You mentioned the city of Winnipeg. They've just released their vision document, so-called Our Winnipeg, and they actually reference PEG as their source of a lot of the data that they plan to use to track progress towards their goals within their plan. And we've certainly seen support from the province as well, recognizing that value of having uh, an open place that people can go to look at data to assess the health of the community. And so, as you say, almost a decade uh, up and running, we're now faced with a global pandemic. I thought uh, your experience with PEG might be able to speak to how open data can be used and and measuring these indicators uh, as a sort of response, an emergency response uh, to community needs, especially in a disaster like uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. Uh, We're finding a a real value of having this open data in a pandemic is that people can look and get a sense uh, of a baseline measure of where vulnerable communities already exist. And knowing that in a pandemic, those are often those people and those neighborhoods where the needs are going to be exponential. So the need will be greatest. For example, one of the pieces of data that we track on PEG is food bank usage. So we can immediately go and look and you have the ability to break it down by neighborhood. So you can look and see what neighborhoods in the city have high food bank usage, knowing then that when COVID-19 struck, that those are likely those areas that might even have an enhanced need for it. You can use that to influence decisions that are made about where you might need to funnel additional resources. Speaking to a previous guest, the concept of critical data thinking kind of came up and and the idea that open data in and of itself isn't necessarily a panacea, but it's it's the questions you ask of these data sets. And I was hoping you could speak to that as well. 
you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, this idea of open data, it's something we, we've obviously encouraged and it's been something I've seen in my career as well, this push to saying, you know, there, there's the value to making data available to everyone. At the same time, it's so important to make sure that the data that people are accessing comes with really clear definitions. There's an understanding of the limitations of the data. And we make a a huge effort with PEG to make sure that with each indicator, as I mentioned earlier, we address limitations. We make sure people understand what you can and can't infer from that data. You can go ahead and download uh, in CSV format the the data from PEG, so it is open and, and available. But Again, it's about uh, the value of PIG is uh, providing that oversight and helping people to interpret and understand how to read the data rather than just having, you know, spreadsheets of data available for download. And also in the open data conversation, a lot of the focus is on uh, urban settings. But I was wondering if you're in, in your career dealing with data, if, if you've had any perspective on rural communities as well and how they can leverage that kind of power. Yeah, it's, you know, I think the rural communities, and we see this in, in the nonprofit sector in general as well, when you look at those areas that have the more limited resources, so when you're looking at just like human resource capacity, they don't have the ability potentially to track data the same way. You know, they don't have the same number of people on staff at some of these organizations in some of these communities. And then what happens is by not collecting the data, they don't have the information available. They can't contribute to the open data sets. But if you look then at some of the larger organizations, so government bodies that can collect the data by making it open and for them pushing back outwards to the rural communities, to nonprofit organizations, giving them the data that they can use themselves to inform their decision making provides such great value. But it really is about acknowledging the need to provide funding that is specifically earmarked for people to use for data collection, data interpretation, data evaluation, because that really sets the foundation for making smart planning for future developments. Right. And related to that, uh, what's what's the main thing that you hope that uh, local governments consider when talking about open data? I think it's, it's really just about understanding, uh, again, I mentioned before, the, the limitations that data, data has. I, I'm a big advocate for data and for open data. At the same time, I always say when you see a big chart of data, there, you should anticipate seeing you know, eight to 10 footnotes at the bottom that gives all the caveats and the context for understanding. And by doing that, I think you take the fear away. So I think there's some people that fear open data. They fear, you know, breaking things down as far as community levels or school division level because they're worried that, you know, they'll lose funding or they're worried that decisions will be made that will negatively impact them. Or they're worried that they'll look bad if their data, if their outcomes aren't looking good. But I think by having people understand, you can always give the context. If you know why your data this year didn't look as good, if you had a a, a decline in, in services provided. If you have a reason for that, you can add that to your data. Data doesn't have to just be numbers, but it can come along with that analysis and the interpretation, which is equally as valuable. And I was wondering if you could leave us with a, a PEG success story, uh, something that you you really consider a benchmark win for, for the program. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm just still so excited about this year. The the fact that the city of Winnipeg this year has used PEG as their primary source for indicators for what they're going to use to track the 40-year vision for the city of Winnipeg is really important for us. And we do consider that such a big win. We so appreciate that our municipal government sees that value that we've been providing by having this uh, this open data available. We love that they have that level of transparency as well. 
they're uh, saying to our community, this is what we're going to use to track our progress towards our goal. And look, you can go look as well yourself on how we're doing at, uh, at, at that progress. As a journalist, I want as much access to information as I can get. It's important to be curious and ask questions. When the answers to those questions are locked away or simply don't exist, the story hits a dead end. But in times of crisis, sometimes access to open data is a matter of community health and vitality. Governments who open their data sets to the public can leverage the good work of everyday people who will take that information and do something innovative with it. But for that data to be useful, it has to exist in the first place. Somebody somewhere had to ask the right question. Open data on its own might not be the solution to the challenges communities face. In a world full of possible answers, knowing how to ask the right question is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, Solutions for Communities Across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. We'll be back next month to explore how data and tech are being used to understand and maximize public spaces. Mm -hmm.